Buenos dias. Good morning. How are you? Uh, we're going to do Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good morning. Do I? Good morning. <laughs> My name is Sam. I'm part of the leadership here at Watermark. Uh, Tommy, Pastor Tommy is out this morning, so I'll be speaking this morning. Uh, you might be thinking, didn't Pastor Tommy already go over this passage? Yes, he did. Uh, I think sometime last year. Uh, but we're going to look at it in a little differently uh, this morning. Um, it was interesting, as I was actually studying this uh, passage, uh, there was a lot of theologians like debating, it doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus ask if salt, being salty, or loses his saltiness, like how can they be you know, salty again? Like it doesn't make any sense. Uh, you could argue these theologians were being very salty themselves. So, okay, all right, I'll stop. Um, This morning we'll be looking at the, uh, this morning we'll be looking at the early church, how it went from a persecuted minority uh, by the empire to being an empire that was actually persecuting others. Uh, It's a fascinating journey, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from and sort of understand some of our current postures of today and some of the things that maybe the church itself is struggling with. So we'll look at that uh, this morning. Um, So we'll pray and let's get started. Father God, thank you, Lord, for this community. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your body. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your spirit, oh, Holy Spirit. We just ask you, oh, Father, to uh, help me, help us to be focused uh, to listen to what you are really saying. Um, even when my words fail, O oh Father, I pray, Lord, that uh, your heart continues on in our minds and uh, in our soul and our understanding. Um, so we just ask you to bless us to stay in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Now, one subject I actually disliked uh, during high school and middle school was history. I, I didn't like it that much because I didn't think it was relevant the teachers didn't seem like they want to be there in the first place. Um, and so I didn't really catch on, which I kind of regret now because I actually love history now. Well, I should love is a strong word, but I like history now. Uh, I'm fascinated by it because it really gives you an understanding of how things happen and why things are the way they are. So I, and now two things that I'm really interested in is history and food. And even more, I like history about food uh, if you combine those together. Uh, my wife actually finds this odd, but uh, sometimes when I'm alone and, and kids are off to bed, I usually like to eat while I'm watching some sort of a food documentary or show. And, and that way, it's a real immersive experience uh, for me, like I'm right there. Um, but I try not to overeat because it can get really dangerous. So um, Now, I really enjoy it because I'm such a food nerd. And, and I don't know if you had this experience where you know how the end product came to be. You have more appreciation uh, for that end product and you understand the process. That can be also said about history. Unless, and, and not just food. Unless the end product is sausage, 
then I don't want to know because it's delicious and I don't want to know how it's made. So keep me ignorant of that. Um, But not just you appreciating things more, but maybe knowing how things came to be may help you to realize some things that you consider normal is not normal. And maybe we do need to change some things in our life. My question this morning is, how do we go from a small minority to where now almost one in three identified themselves as Christians? And how was the church impacted by this process and the relationship that church had with the empire? So hold tight. It's going to get a little bit nerdy this morning uh, as we begin. Let's start with Jesus and his crucifixion. Uh, I know it's uh, sort of a rough place to start. Let me see if I have the PowerPoint up, the connection. Can you move this slide for me? I'm... Hold a sec. We'll edit this out of the podcast. <laughs> All right. So let's start with Jesus and his crucifixion. It, I know it kind of sucks because we just had um, Easter, so it's like sort of pulling back, going back to <laughs> crucifixion. Uh, but, and we will go back to the passage that we uh, talked about in the beginning. Uh, Being crucified uh, in the Roman Empire was a terrible death. It was for traitors, for uh, for criminals, it was for agitators, it was for rebels. Uh, But the punishment uh, was to be scourged, to be whipped, and then to carry this heavy crossbeam to the place of your own death. And they would also have to carry the sign uh, with your name and the crime that you've committed against the uh, empire. And when the cross was raised, the signboard was also fastened to the cross. And this is how the Romans would carry out the crucifixion. It was meant to be public. It was meant to be a humiliation. And it was for maximum impact. And in Jesus' case, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And here he was, who was this sort of new catalyst for this movement. Few years after that, someone named Saul or Paul, came along who was violent and persecuted Christians with religious zeal. He had this dramatic conversion experience where Jesus appealed before him and said, why are you persecuting me? He helps this movement toward Gentiles, and at the moment for most of this, Christianity at that time was very much Jewish. But here's what made Paul perfect for spreading the gospel. He was educated in the strictest Jewish tradition. He studied under a very respected uh, rabbi, uh, Gamaliel, uh, in Jerusalem, who happened to be the same rabbi who was in the pragmatic teacher in Acts chapter 5. Paul was fluent in Greek and understood well read, uh, and was very well read in Greek thought and literature. This meant that he could communicate very effectively the teaching of Jesus uh, to those who were completely foreign and, and pagan uh, to the Jewish ideas. And in many ways uh, to help pagans understand. And Paul was a Roman citizen. This gave him a lot of flexibility. Gave him some ability to move around freely. Giving him some protection to travel. And at times to have access to those who had power or, or considered elite. And the tension was there in the first century because to Palestinian Christians who still considered themselves very Jewish. Would let the Gentiles know you have to submit to the Jewish law, in addition to following Jesus. However, Paul was starting to show that you can be Christian without having the burdens of some of these Jewish traditions and laws. 
Now, when Paul and, and others were making Christianity, were making wins for, and gains for Christianity, the church in Jerusalem was hurting very much. Uh, they were persecuted. The leaders were killed. And for a time, the leadership of the Jerusalem church uh, was on the shoulder of James, also known as James the Just, who was the brother of Jesus. Uh, James, who was devout, law-abiding Jew, and he too was murdered by the command of the Jewish high priest. And his death left Jerusalem church leaderless and demoralized. This was around 62. And in 70 AD, the temple was burned and destroyed. Now, right before the destruction of the temple, some of the church leaders and Christians decided to leave the city because of the persecution. But for Jews, they took this as an opportunity for those Jews who follow Yeshua or Jesus uh, that to make a case that they're really not one of us. Here it is. They're abandoning us in a time of need when, for national survival against the Romans. And with that decision, they decided that Christian Jews can no longer be allowed in the synagogue, and the separation became very real. Now, going from this tiny offshoot of Judaism to something big was very interesting. Uh, they said... Uh, scholars said there's multiple reasons. Uh, some of it was persecution. Uh, it helped to spread out the Christianity to other regions around the world. And some Christians would flee persecution uh, to, to, you know, to live freely uh, in other areas. Others would argue that Paul really opened up and was able to successfully translate the gospel uh, to non-Jews. And for some pagans who respected the Jewish people and their beliefs, for some of them, Christian was sort of the, like the next best thing, uh, those who were observers of the Judaism, of, of Jewish people, without having this burden of Jewish. You don't have to be circumcised? Sign me up. Historian Bruce Shelley actually lists some of the reasons. One, early church and their devout convictions. Despite tensions and persecution, the gospel seemed like an incredible force to commit, even to their own death, to be martyrs. This was unreal. Here was this new religion, this new God. At that time, everyone was polytheist. Everyone believed in, you know, multiple gods. You worship these gods by tradition. You hold these regional customs to give you better crops. Uh, And when you find a new God, you just add them to the collection that you already have. And so to people, to worship of these gods were important, but these followers of Jesus only believed in one God, and they believed it was the one true God, to the point of refusing to worship any gods demanded by the empire and to sacrifice your own life for that. And so if you understand this type of zeal and passion, you can understand how it grew at such an exponential rate. Second, the practical expression of Christian love. Tertullian was an early Christian theologian uh, from the Carthage and Roman province in Africa. He tells us, Uh, The pagans remarked, see how these Christians love one another. And it was no joke. Uh, They love, the love that they've shown for the widows, for the poor, for the orphans was incredible. Uh, The acts of compassion they showed during famine um, and, 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 and during war was extremely attractive and admirable. One of these expressions that made a real impact uh, was providing burial for the poor believers. For those who could not afford burial grounds. Uh, Lactantius, uh, another North African scholar, said, We will not allow the image and creation of God to be thrown out uh, to the wild beasts 
and, and birds as their prey. It must be given back to the earth from which it was taken. This was so famous, it was even noticed by the Roman emperor, Julian, who said atheism, by the way, Christians were considered atheists in a way because they said, hey, we don't believe in your gods. So atheism being rejection of gods, they were considered atheists. So atheism, a Christian faith, has been specifically advanced through the long service, loving service rendered to strangers. And through their care for the burial of the dead, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. And, and three, uh, as Bruce Shelley uh, counts, finally persecution really helps help to publicize Christians in a way. It kind of worked against the Roman Empire. Martyrdom was usually witnessed by thousands in amphitheater at times. And, and what happened was it was inspiring and at, at the same time, it was alluring because there were these people, even documented cases of people converting as they were witnessing uh, the death of Christians. Now, some argue that it was Constantine who really made Christianity a household name uh, in the Roman Empire. But there's others say that there's some other factors involved. Bart Ehrman, who is a New Testament scholar, he used to be Christian, but he considers himself agnostic now, actually wrote a book just recently called Triumph of Christianity. He argues that Christianity was on a multiplier. It was on an exponential growth. And if Constantine wasn't the first one, he guesses that either his sons or some other emperors that came along uh, would have become a Christian emperor. And so in the early church, they also had a real zeal to share the gospel with their neighbors, to let them know how much of this, about this one true God and that the reasons why pagans converted because Jesus seemed much more powerful uh, and yet a compassionate God. And that many of these pagans who believed in multiple gods were attracted to this. The reason why anyone in the ancient context was carrying out the pagan religion was, you know, besides tradition was for crops, for reasons unknown, for weather, uh, for, um, for businesses, for whatever, for children. And, and they believed in multiple of gods because they believed uh, uh, on what they cannot control, these gods can Things that we cannot control is sort of this common thread and that at the same time there was this mutual feeling of these gods being far away and were busy and that had their own things to do. And then here was this Jesus who was sort of this disruptor. He disrupted uh, that type of belief and all of that. He heals the sick. He eats with the sinners. A God who became human in flesh and lived with us. Here was a story of Jesus who teaches to take care of the orphans and the widows, who heals the sick and raises the dead. It just seemed like this God was one who actually cares and not one that you just make sacrifices to. Not only that, the miracles performed by the early church seemed to be a huge component. Um, that here is this God who is that much more powerful than the gods that I have back at home. He very much so appeared to be more powerful. And so here was this religion of love and caring for the poor, the outcasts and the marginalized. And one of the reasons why we have these institutions that take care of the poor, the sick, is because Jesus and the early Christians sort of lived this out. Hospitality and hospitals and, and other caring institutions were sort of born out of these Christian passion. 
So the widespread ideology was that the strong overpowers and rules over the weak, rich over the poor, men over women, but Christianity seemed to be different. People were equal. The poor was allowed to be in the same table as the rich. The treatment of the woman were different. The powerful and the powerless were sort of in the same footing. And so while Christianity was growing, it was still pretty small. Um, some scholars speculate that around Constantine, around uh, 300, 312, that at that point, the Roman Empire, uh, Christians only made up about 6 to 8%. Um, so it was still relatively small. Uh, however, Constantine became Christian in the midst of this, and in a way, he sort of marks the beginning of a Christian empire, sort of this unfortunate marriage of empire and the church. Now, uh, before going to Constantine, I just want to back up just a little bit. Uh, the worst and the last persecution of Christians in Rome uh, was by Emperor Galerius, who almost seemed that made it like a life challenge to persecute and kill and purge the world of Christians. The killings were so many and the tortures were so horrific that it really turned off the people and the popular opinion turned against him. Uh, So much so, in his last official act, Emperor Galerius reluctantly issued an edict of toleration. And upon his death, uh, what happened was the sort of struggle of power uh, broke loose. That's where Constantine comes in in this sort of backdrop. So Constantine had this sort of come-to-Jesus movement uh, at the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312. Right before he was about to go uh, at his rival into battle, he supposedly had a dream where he saw a cross in the sky and, and, and the words, in this sign, conquer. And that's what he did. His legions fought under the banner of Christ, supposedly. And he achieved this victory, and he supposedly took this as a proof, as a power of Christ. Now, let me say this, uh, caveat here. Some historians actually say that this was purely a political move. Others say this might have not happened at all. Uh, what's interesting is that this is the, uh, the Arch of Constantine, the Triumph Arch of Constantine, which was erected right next to the Colosseum. Uh, and it was only recent that they were able to study up close uh, what was on these, uh, at the sort of the top level of the, the buildings or uh, the structure. And there's no mention of Jesus. Uh, there's no mention of Jesus on the shields. There's no mention of Jesus on the, on, the, on the banners. But there are few pagan gods that were in there. Uh, so it is debatable. Uh, either way, though, Constantine, I believe, used this um, for power, for the empire. And here's what's interesting, though. It's that there was this very stark contrast to what others received from Jesus. Similar to the way Paul was surprised by Jesus in similar fashion, uh, what's interesting is Paul uh, gets a vision of Jesus, and Jesus tells him, you are going to suffer for me. Uh, There is a lot of labor ahead of you, uh, and you will do a lot of work for the kingdom of God. While Constantine's Jesus is saying to him to fight and kill under my name and under my banner. And the irony was that this Jesus was encouraging violence. And so from 312, he favored Christianity very openly. I mean, he still murdered and stuff, did all the you know, regular Roman emperor things. But he also abolished execution by crucifixion. 
He stopped the battles of gladiator as punishment for crime. He made Sunday a public holiday. And he gave tax exemptions to Christian ministers as it was given to pagan uh, priests. And if that doesn't make you think of anything with tax exemptions, don't forget to do your taxes. I just remember that. He did gather the church leaders to also help draft the Nicene Creed. Here it was, this Christian emperor who envisioned the new beginning, new salvation of this age. But there was a problem. There were positives, but it was at a cost. Constantine also ruled the Christians like he would civil servants. He demanded obedience from them. Afterwards, something new happened, and a massive amount of people were coming to these officially favored churches. Many came in and did all the right things for political ambition. And you have to remember, Romans were very religious people. And in 380, uh, belief in Christianity became an imperial command as Theodosius passed an edict along with two other emperors. He says... It is our will that all the people we rule shall practice the religion which divine Peter the apostle transmitted to the Romans. We shall believe in a single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty and of holy trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of the Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we adjudge, demented, and insane, shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten first by divine vengeance, and secondly by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. Doesn't that just warm your heart? <laughs> and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Because your government tells you to? Okay, so what has happened is that there seemed to be this blur between emperor's will and God's will. And what happened next was that the church was drinking from the same poison the empire was. There were people who acted very much like emperors, uh, popes, who very much acted like emperors throughout history. Uh, There were popes who made kings and emperors humble themselves with a threat of excommunication. Uh, And then kings who made their own version of Christianity in a way because they did not want to obey the pope. Due to that, sometimes there were two, three popes competing at times. And what you see is Christian empire and later empires who had religious justification to exercise power, to expand the kingdom, because it was God's kingdom. At least they thought. There were some theologians at the time, including Augustine, who rejected violence initially, but later justified it theologically against those he considered heretics. Because it was justified in order to weed out the heresies that could jeopardize the future Christians. Because it was justified in that way, it was, in a way, it's really messed up. Here's this thing, this religion that was persecuting and executing uh, the Christians by the empire became the empire that persecuted and executed those who did not share the same dogmatic beliefs. And I hope it's not lost on you that initially, in the beginning, I started with the crucifixion of Jesus. The story of Jesus' crucifixion, who was very much against this power over and coercion of the empire and the world, which he considered under Satan's rule. Now let's get to the passage. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. And said they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I'm not going to go over uh, the stuff Pastor Tommy already went over because he did it. But just to recap, salt was used for seasoning like many of us uh, utilize. If you have children who really love salt, sometimes my kids take shots of salt when I'm not looking. I tell them stop it because there's diabetes in the family. Um, but it was also used for preservatives as well as uh, uh, used for sacrifices to slow, as well as to slow the decay in food. Um, most salt in the ancient world uh, was from salt marshes and something like that. Uh, uh, there were a lot of impurities in that type of salt. And when exposed to the elements, um, this actual salt was sort of leach out, leaving you what you have as sort of worthless. Jesus specifically saying you to his disciples that they can have a positive impact in the world. The word world in verse 14, cosmos, it means the universe, the inhabitants of the world, humankind, that they could have a positive impact in the cosmos. And he says this right after the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. He was saying this to his disciples, you are the salt, you are the light, and as such, you must demonstrate the kingdom of God in your lives. Demonstrate the love of Christ, even when there is persecution. The problem that we have is that we as humans are way too attracted to power, to control. And what happens is that we sometimes become participants of the ways of the empire and the world. For instance, what do you think of when you hear the word evangelicals? I think about all the times you hear the word evangelical in the news, and it's, it almost seems like it's always something political, rarely about what evangelical is actually supposed to mean. Uh, the term evangelical actually derives from Eugelian, uh, meaning gospel or good news. Originally, evangelical, when, you know, when we started using the term, it referred to a person, church, or community that is committed, committed to the Christian gospel message and that Jesus Christ as the savior of humanity. But sometimes, somehow, evangelicals became uh, affiliated with this sort of a religious political party or at least perceived that way. The point is that some Christians, I think, have been seduced by the power of the empire and forgot the kingdom of God doesn't work by power over people, but by sacrificing oneself as Jesus has done. Rather than focusing on power over others like the empire, either by focusing on legislation or laws, where we in a way weaponize the Bible to protect our own rights, or making sure we have a Christian in the office, rather we should focus on loving our neighbors and serving those around us. And honestly, putting our hope on a politician, have that worked? Um, It rarely works out. Maybe never. So... What are some ways where we can be salt of the earth and light of the world? Um, Here's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., and I think he had the right idea. He says, the church must be reminded 
that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather a conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critique of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral and spiritual authority. I think Martin Luther King Jr. understood that it did not work where church was the master of the state, like when the empire became Christian empire or nations. He also understood that we cannot be the servant of the state where the nations rule the church because as long as we're servants of the state, we're doing the biddings of the nation and we cannot be a prophetic voice as Martin Luther King Jr. was during the civil rights movement. And it's not about trying to fix the world with political parties or legislation or sword or tanks or bombs or whatever. It is the power of Christ, which is to sacrifice, making yourself inconvenient, serving others, washing people's feet, not giving up and not abandoning those who are in need, welcoming the stranger, opening up your home, opening your life so that the Christ in you can shine. So rather than contributing to the power over culture, how about we become at the forefront of getting rid of sexism and discrimination towards women or violence towards women? Rather than protecting some politicians or church leaders when they're accused of sexual assault, how about we go and protect victims to make sure that they're not at further risk? Rather than just being comfortable or uncomfortable or shocked for a few minutes when we hear about racism in our country, how about we figure out ways where we can stop and reverse systematic injustice and discrimination that's happening to minorities? Rather than being at the forefront of political battles and serving those around us, we should be the voice for the voiceless and underprivileged. It's not enough for us to just say, yeah, that's wrong, and be passive. How can we figure out a way where we can serve And live sacrificially, not for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of others, like Martin Luther King Jr. said. Gospel teaches for the powerful and the privileged to humble oneself and learn to sacrifice and empower others. Martin Luther King Jr., he also said, the time is always right to do what is right. Let me say, uh, let me conclude with this, uh, with Stanley Howard's. Uh, He said, the problem after all is not belief in the resurrection, but whether we live lives that would make no sense if in fact Jesus had not been raised from the dead. It's for us to live the kingdom now, kingdom of God now, not to be passive with the kingdom of God, but to be active in what God is doing. In the coming of age when God will rule the kingdom, that kingdom to come, we know there won't be any racism. So the church needs to show what it's like to be free of hatred and bigotry now. In the new kingdom where Jesus returns, we know there won't be any violence. So for right now, we need to be community of peacemakers and people free of violence. We live in a world where people with pride are looking down at those society who claims to be less. We are to be people who live to sacrifice, to volunteer ourselves, our lives, and personal comfort and finances and for others to be voice of the voiceless. And that's what it means for us to be salt of the earth and light of the world. True hope does not lie in any empire, any nation, any politics, any economic system of this earth, but in Jesus Christ. Not socialism, not capitalism. It's not based on Jerusalem or America. It is in Jesus Christ. So my question for you today is, where is your hope? What do you put your faith in? 
And not just in the life after, but life right now. Where is your reality? What is your reality? What do you believe in? Our hope today is not to rely on any earthly kingdom, but in Jesus Christ and the age to come. This time we're going to take communion, which we do every week. Um, In times when the reality of God seems far away, here it is in communion that reminds us of the real sacrifice that Jesus made. The body that was given to you, that the blood that was poured out for us. We do this in memory of his sacrifice. Here's something that we can taste, something real that we can taste and touch. Uh, and I pray that the kingdom of God and the hope of Jesus Christ be as that real thing in your life. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, break our comfort. Break the little things, Lord, that makes us convenient. Be convenient in our lives and comfortable in our lives. And I pray, Holy Spirit, to give us courage, to give us boldness, oh God. To walk humbly with you, to love justice and to love mercy. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what it means to be salt of this earth and light of the world. And I pray, Holy Spirit, may the kingdom of God be so real in our hearts and our lives that it's not just, you know, in our Sunday section or in our Christian section, oh, Father, but let it permeate through the rest of our lives, all of our lives. And we submit to you, oh, Father. We submit to you, Jesus Christ, as the Lord in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.